Good morning, church. The scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will gladly bring one to you. And if you, if you don't have one at home, you are welcome to keep this one. It is our gift to you. Again, the scripture, the scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. Hear what Holy Scripture says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your holy word. I pray that I might faithfully proclaim your word to your people. I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of your word so that we might all respond in obedience and faith as we behold your glory. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the final sermon in our summer series through the letter, through Paul's letter through the Philippians. We are almost done. For those of you who have journeyed with us over the past couple months through Philippians, I hope that you have been deeply encouraged by its message. I know I've been. And for those of you who are new, don't worry, I'll bring you up to speed. I'll quickly review the context and the main theme throughout the whole letter, and then we'll dive into today's passage. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church while he was in prison in Rome. He was arrested and put in prison for the crime of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church in Philippi, having heard of what happened to Paul, sent one of their own members, Epaphroditus, along with many gifts and supplies to Rome to minister to Paul's needs. The letter that we possess in our Bibles today was written by Paul in response to the Philippians' generosity and was likely delivered by Epaphroditus himself. And Paul's response in this letter was one of thanksgiving and encouragement. He wrote to thank the Philippians for partnering with him in the gospel 
and to encourage them to continue to live as citizens of heaven who are worthy of the gospel. You see, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a beautiful example of what healthy gospel partnership looks like. In it, God reveals to us how we who are united in Christ are to relate to one another, how we are to pray, how we are to think, and how we are to act all in light of the gospel. It is as we have been saying throughout this whole series, it's about joyfully striving together for the gospel. Joyfully striving together for the gospel. And that's the main theme of Philippians. It is a picture of vibrant, joyful, healthy gospel partnership. And while that is true for the letter as a whole, it's also true of today's passage in particular, which is why I've titled this sermon, Healthy Gospel Partnership. In our passage today, which is the last section of Paul's letter, I intend to show you three principles that characterize healthy gospel partnerships. These are three principles that were present in the partnership between Paul and the Philippian church, and I believe these are three principles that we can apply as we pursue healthy gospel partnerships together. And the first principle is this. Healthy gospel partnerships counterbalance concerns with contentment. Healthy gospel partnerships counterbalance concerns with contentment. My wife, Joanna, and I have four young children, and we love them very much. We also have many things that concern us about them. Our youngest daughter, Noelle, just turned nine months old. She is a super cute baby, and we love her very, very much. And as somewhat experienced parents, Joanna and I have been tracking Noelle's developmental milestones. You know, the skills that most babies are able to learn by a certain month, like rolling over or holding their head up or crawling. Well, actually, I'm a little bit clueless about these milestones, but Joanna is very much on top of them. <laughs> a couple months ago, when Noelle was seven months old, she didn't know how to use her arms to prop herself up while laying on her tummy. And Joanna let me know that this was a very big deal because it meant that she was behind in reaching her developmental milestones. If Noelle still can't, at seven months, prop herself up on her tummy, then she'll be even more delayed when it comes to reaching the next milestone, like crawling. I still wasn't entirely convinced because I thought, you know, what's so bad about her not crawling as quickly? I kind of like the idea that she can't move around so much. We don't have to baby-proof baby the house as soon. But anyway, Joanna's concern prevailed, and it quickly became my concern too. We earnestly acted upon it and instituted way more tummy time for Noelle. And it was intense. Noelle was not very happy about it, and let's just say that there was a lot of crying involved. And when she cried, I would even stop Joanna from picking her up, just for a little bit, eventually she could, because I knew that Noelle needed that precious tummy time in order to reach her developmental milestone. And I'm happy to report that not long afterwards, Noelle has been able to effortlessly and happily, well, at least most of the time, <laughs> prop herself up while lying on her tummy, and she will be probably crawling very soon. Joanna and I were concerned about baby Noelle. That concern led us to act in love to give her what she needed. 
our concern was instrumental to how we as father and mother loved Noel. The concern was a good thing. Likewise, the Philippians were concerned for Paul, and that led them to earnestly act in love to give Paul what he needed. Healthy gospel partnerships include expressing concerns for one another, and that is a good thing. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The Philippians were deeply concerned for Paul. We aren't given an explicit list of what the Philippians were concerned about exactly, but I think we can get a pretty good idea just by piecing together the clues that we see from how Paul responds to those concerns throughout the whole letter. For example, we know that the Philippians knew that, prison, that Paul was in prison, and we can imagine how that in and of itself comes with a whole host of concerns. Does he have enough food and clothing? Is he all alone? Are people visiting him enough? Are the prison guards abusing him? Is Caesar going to have him executed? More than that, not only did they know that he was in prison, they also knew that people, even professing Christians, were working against Paul by proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition and intending to afflict Paul while he was in prison. Did he feel hurt by that? Is he angry? Is he discouraged? Is he okay? Even further still, there was Paul's ministry and by extension the ministry of the gospel to be concerned about. Will people now be afraid to preach the gospel because they heard that Paul was imprisoned for it? Will this hinder the gospel from going out? My point here is that it isn't hard to understand why the Philippians might be so concerned for Paul. And Paul reassures the Philippians throughout the whole letter that he is filled with joy and that the gospel continues to advance unhindered. Nevertheless, Paul expresses great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Philippians have revived their concern for him. According to Paul, their concern is a good thing. So much so that it causes him to celebrate with joy and thanksgiving toward Jesus. And that's significant because it means Paul understands that the Lord Jesus Christ was at work through the Philippians' concerns for Paul's benefit. Paul also acknowledges that there is a certain earnestness in their concern. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. There is a difference in intensity with, the, with this renewed concern because God had opened a door for the Philippians to act. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul is essentially saying, although you were indeed concerned for me in the past, that is, this is not so much a new concern, but up until now, you couldn't act upon your concerns. For whatever reason, you had no opportunity. But this time was different because the Philippians finally saw an opportunity and that reawakened their concern with such intensity that they acted upon it. They did something about it. They sent Epaphroditus along with many gifts to Paul in Rome. Their concern led them to act in loving kindness, which is why Paul says later down in verse 14, it was kind of them to share his trouble. So what we have learned so far is that this kind of concern that the Philippians had for Paul is good. We should want to be concerned like this. 
we ought to strive to be genuinely and earnestly concerned for one another, concerned enough that it leads us to act in love once the opportunities present themselves. Genuine, active, loving concern is a good thing. But we need to be careful here because it's possible for our concerns to go too far. More specifically, they go too far when our hearts and minds are no longer at peace with God. If you are so concerned that you cannot rest at peace with God, then you need to correct that by bringing those to God in prayer. If your concerns rob you of your joy and trust in the Lord, then they have become idolatrous and they will consume your life. Going back to the example with baby Noel, if Joanna and I were concerned to the point that we believed we were absolute failures as parents and that there was no longer any hope for Noel because it was too late, then we wouldn't be at peace with God. We would have failed to trust God to grow and mature Noel like he does with all healthy babies. It is, however, very much possible to be concerned while at rest and peace with God. It is possible to be concerned yet joyful at the same time because you trust in the Lord. I can be concerned for Noel while trusting that because God has given us a healthy baby, she is going to grow and reach those developmental milestones at one point or another. It's a matter of balance, and the thing that counterbalances concerns from sinking too far into restlessness and despair is contentment in the Lord. Look at verse 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians understood that any concern they had for his needs did not affect his ability to be content. Yes, the Philippians were right to be concerned, but like Paul, that concern needed to be counterbalanced with contentment whether or not they could successfully address that concern. If, some, if for some reason something went wrong and Epaphroditus couldn't make it to Rome, if Paul's needs couldn't be met, Paul would still have enough to be content in the Lord, and so would the Philippian church. Paul explains further in verses 12 to 13, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice here the unshakable and indestructible nature of Paul's contentment. It really doesn't matter what life throws at him. He can be brought low into poverty and live with little to nothing. Or he can prosper in abundance and wealth. He can be filled with food or starving in hunger, rich or poor, healthy or sick, treated justly or unjustly, free or in jail, celebrating or mourning, or anything in between. It really doesn't matter. In whatever situation he's in, he knows how to be content. He is always satisfied and at peace with God. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't we all want that too? I find it so encouraging that he emphasizes that this knowledge, this secret of contentment, can be learned. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
This contentment isn't some superpower that God had bestowed uniquely upon Paul. It is a spiritual lesson that he learned through faith. And that means that the Philippian church could learn it too. And dear Christian, that means you and I can learn this as well. And here's the secret to contentment that we need to learn. Contentment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who will strengthen you for whatever circumstance he has called you to. Therefore, you can say, like Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know, I know, it's a very popular verse. It's probably one of the most popular verses in all of scripture, let alone the book of Philippians. It's a beautiful verse. But we need to see it in the proper context. We need to see it within Paul's flow of thought. Paul is talking here about being content in the midst of any and every circumstance. When he says, I can do all things, he is not saying that he can do whatever he sets his mind to. He is specifically talking about how he can be content in all things. And the way that he does that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through all the ways that Paul has already highlighted throughout the whole letter by following Christ's example in humility, by glorying in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh, by knowing him and the power of his resurrection, by sharing in his sufferings, and by standing firm in him. The Lord Jesus Christ is enough for Paul and his needs, even in and especially in the midst of suffering. If you have Christ, then you have everything you need to be content. Do you believe that? Are you content in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Or does that change depending on your circumstances? If things are going well for you and all your needs are being met, and praise God for that, would you still be satisfied in Jesus if God took all that away? If today you are facing suffering, hardship, uncertainty, fear, heartbreak, or loss? Do you trust that the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for you? Not just a little bit, but able to fully satisfy your every need. Not through your own strength, but through Christ who strengthens you. It's a hard lesson to learn. And believe me, I am right there with you learning this lesson too. As much as I am preaching this to you, I need to preach this to myself. But beloved brother, beloved sister, Jesus Christ himself is all you need to be content. When we focus on our concerns, which are big and numerous, and we look at our own strength, which is weak and woefully insufficient, then it is so easy for us to forget how much bigger and better and stronger Christ is in comparison. The solution is to zoom out and to see that even with all these concerns and with all our weaknesses, the Lord Jesus Christ and his strength are enough for us to endure it all. And so we can counterbalance such concerns with contentment in Christ and we can encourage one another to do the same because that's what we are called to do as partners in the gospel. Healthy gospel partnerships counterbalance concerns with contentment. That's the first principle we see. 
The second one can be found in verses 14 to 16, and it is this. Healthy gospel partnerships fellowship faithfully, frequently in faithfulness. Healthy gospel partnerships fellowship frequently in faithfulness. Verse 14 reads, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. After explaining how he has learned to be content in all things, Paul brings the topic back to how thankful he is that the Philippians shared his trouble. That word translated as share here in the English Bible is actually the same word for partnership or fellowship. So an alternate translation, which the ESV actually highlights in the footnotes, could be this. Yet it was kind of you to have fellowship in my trouble. Paul is thankful that the Philippians have kindly shared his pain and suffering through their concern for him. It was more than just a fundraiser and a donation from the Philippian church to some worthy organization that they partnered with. There was a sweet, close, and personal relationship between Paul and the Philippians. They felt his pain, and they were eagerly awaiting to feel his joy, which I'm sure they did after they read the letter. Their gospel partnership was characterized by intimate fellowship. Let's skip down for a moment to the end of the letter and look at verses 21 to 22. It says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This was a deeply personal letter for Paul. He knows the saints in Philippi. And for the ones he doesn't know, he wants to know. The greeting extends to every saint in Christ Jesus. And he wants the Philippians to know they are in fellowship with those with Paul in Rome too. Did you catch that little note at the end? Especially those of Caesar's household. I love that. That's the fruit of Paul's ministry while in prison in Rome. Caesar's household could include anyone under Caesar's service, including servants and soldiers like prison guards. As the gospel continued to advance, gospel fellowship continued to increase. Going back to verses 15 and 16, Paul continues, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul had traveled throughout the whole Roman Empire to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. Paul didn't stay too long with the Philippians, and yet they stayed in frequent fellowship throughout Paul's missionary endeavors. The connection was there from the beginning. The Philippians remained faithful to Paul in giving supplies for his needs everywhere he went. This was true when he left Macedonia and also when he came back to Thessalonica. So this latest act of the Philippians' giving is just the latest in a pattern of giving for the Philippians. They have sent help for his needs time and time again. And there is a high degree of faithfulness among the Philippians. They stayed connected with Paul in fellowship during times when no other church did. And remember, Paul planted many churches. And this was true from what Paul calls the beginning of the gospel. He is referring to the time when the gospel was first preached in Philippi. By God's grace, we actually can get a glimpse of what things were like in the beginning of the gospel for the Philippians. We have that account in the New Testament. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16 for just a little bit. I won't go through the whole thing for the sake of time, but I'd like to cover just enough so that you get the gist of it. In Acts chapter 16, 
Paul and his missionary companions were prevented by the spirit of Jesus to preach the gospel in Asia. And after seeing a vision from God, Paul and his companions conclude that God was calling them to preach in Macedonia. And the very first stop in Macedonia was the city of Philippi. In verses 13 to 15, it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is where the gospel began in Philippi. The Lord Jesus Christ was at work here and opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. It says that Lydia was a seller of purple goods. That doesn't mean that she just really liked the color purple. Purple dyes were very, very pricey back then, and so purple goods were kind of like luxury items. Why is that important? Because it means that Lydia was probably quite the wealthy businesswoman. So when she convinces Paul and his companions to stay at her place, you can imagine that Paul probably ate very well and slept very well that night. Some days later, while Paul and Silas continue preaching the gospel, Paul casts out an, an evil fortune-telling spirit from a slave girl that makes her owners very upset. They seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the, market, into the marketplace. Eventually, a whole crowd is attacking them, and the magistrates strip Paul and Silas of their clothing and command that they be beaten with rods and thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. Think about the turn of events that took place. One day, they are living in abundance at Lydia's house, and all of a sudden, they are in great need. Stripped, humiliated, beaten, and thrown into prison in stocks. One day in plenty and abundance, the next day in hunger and need. Then we see how Paul and Silas respond in verses 25 to 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Let me skip ahead at the end of verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Paul and Silas responded by worshiping God in prayer and song. Being in prison and chains doesn't stop the gospel work from going forward. For Paul and Silas, the prison ministry began immediately. The reason the jailer asked the question about salvation is probably because he heard them praying and singing about that salvation. For the Philippian jailer, what was probably just a, what he thought would be a routine shift very quickly turned into one of his lowest points when he wanted to kill himself. And then not long after that, he is rejoicing because he believed the gospel. Does that sound familiar? 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. That was the beginning of the gospel for the Philippians. But what I think is important that we see from this is how the Philippians witness firsthand how the gospel flourished in plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Those are not just generic statements from Paul. The Philippians were there. They saw it. And more than that, they experienced it for themselves alongside Paul. That's why Paul can write to them knowing that they would, will be encouraged because they were encouraged when it happened in the beginning. And that is why their gospel partnership continued to be characterized by fellowship in faithfulness ever since. Let me highlight one application that I believe is relevant for our church. The way that we as a church relate to our missionaries ought to be informed by what we see here between the Philippian church and Paul. We don't support that many missionaries right now. And that's intentional because we want to cultivate those close, personal, and meaningful relationships with the few whom we do send out. It's much harder to do that if we were supporting many, many missionaries at once. You see, we want gospel partnership to be far more than just about sending gifts to supply their needs. We want to be faithful in fellowship with them as well. One thing I am thankful for in this church is how each missionary family we support is assigned what we call a Barnabas team, a dedicated, a dedicated group of people who are responsible for staying connected in fellowship with a specific missionary family that we've sent out. Now, there are so many more opportunities for us to grow in this area and to involve more of the church, but one practical thing that you can do right now is to simply get to know the missionaries that we support as a church. Look for opportunities to connect with them in pursuit of the kind of fellowship we see here between Paul and the Philippians. Because healthy gospel partnerships, like those between our church and the missionaries that we have sent out, are called to fellowship frequently and faithfulness. Finally, let's look at the last section in the book of Philippians. I'll try to make this quick. Here's the final point. Healthy gospel partnerships give generously for God's glory. Healthy gospel partnerships give generously for God's glory. Look at verses 17 and 18. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here, Paul reassures the Philippians that while he is thankful for their gifts, his aim is not to try to get more gifts out of them. Rather, even in the matter of receiving gifts, he's looking out for the interests of others. Specifically, he says he is seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. This is a business metaphor that can also be translated as the profit that accrues to your account. It's like he's treating the gifts and supplies as an investment that will result in a profitable return for the Philippians. Because the Philippians gave generously to Paul, Paul is now able to give generously of himself in advancing the gospel. That results in more people believing in the gospel to the glory of God. And so more glory goes to God through Paul's work with the assistance of the Philippians' gift. But there is more to that here. 
After Paul says that he is well supplied because of the gifts that came from Epaphroditus, he calls the generous gifts a fragrant offering. This is the same language that's used in the Old Testament of the burnt offerings giving off a pleasing aroma to God. Paul continues the metaphor by saying that the gifts are a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, the generous gift of the Philippians is rightly seen as an act of costly worship, like the Old Testament sacrifices were supposed to be. It hurt the Philippians to give this gift. Remember back in chapter 2, Paul said that Epaphroditus nearly died in the process. But it was an act of worship that was acceptable and pleasing to God. It glorified God. So if, if you're able to follow along with me so far, let's recap how this one generous gift, this one generous act of giving from the Philippians multiplied in glory to God. First, the gift itself was an act of worship to glorify God. Secondly, Paul, as the recipient, gave thanks and glorified God because his needs were provided for. Third, Paul could use those gifts under, uh, to further glorify God in his gospel ministry. And finally, that would lead to others glorifying God through believing the gospel. All the glory goes to God. What does God do in response? Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God responds to generous giving with more generous giving. His own generous giving. God will give according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, and he is most certainly rich in glory. It delights God to give generously to his people when we give generously for his glory, because then we can continue to give generously for his glory. God will supply every need so that you may abound in every good work. This causes the cycle of giving and the resulting glory to continue and to multiply more and more. And the result of all that is what we see in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I think the application here is pretty straightforward. Give generously of your time, of your money, of yourself for the sake of the gospel as an act of worship to God and for the glory of God. The promise is that God himself will supply every need of yours according to his riches of, in glory in Christ Jesus. So this is the third and final characteristic of healthy gospel partnership that we see from our passage today. Healthy gospel partnerships give generously for God's glory. Church, I hope that as we have looked at this passage together, you can see more clearly now how beautiful and sweet it is to have healthy gospel partnerships, like what Paul had with the Philippian church. Healthy gospel partnerships counterbalance concerns with contentment. They fellowship frequently in faithfulness, and they give generously for God's glory. When we practice these things together between our own church members, or in sending our missionaries, or in partnering with other churches, both near and far, then we will be filled with joy in the Lord Jesus Christ as we share our troubles and strive together for the gospel, all to the glory of God. But before we end, I would like to leave you with one final thought. Why did God design for gospel partnerships in gospel ministry to flourish in this way? Why require 
concerns and contentment, fellowship and faithfulness, generous giving and glory. Here's why. God in his wisdom designed for the gospel to flourish with these things because these things are at the heart of the gospel message itself. Think about it. The gospel is the message that begins with the creator God who is rich in glory and has no needs whatsoever. From eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were fully content with one another in fellowship and glory. The gospel is about how this triune God acted in love out of deep concern for fallen humanity. We are the needy ones. We walked as his enemies because we had broken his law. We were cut off from fellowship with God, which is what he created us for, and we are the ones in need of rescue. Friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, please recognize that this is your greatest need. There may be a hundred other things that you are concerned about, and you may be right to be concerned about them, but do not overlook this one. Because you are walking in rebellion against God, you need to be rescued from the judgments you deserve. You need a savior. But the good news is that rather than condemn us and destroy us as he would have been perfectly right to do, instead, he gave generously of himself through his son. The Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich in glory, emptied himself of all his riches and took on human form in order to share our trouble. He had fellowship in our trouble. He was faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that our debt of sin might be paid for in full. He is risen from the dead. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he calls everyone everywhere to repent, to forsake your sins and to trust in him. And when we do so, we follow in his footsteps down the same path he walked. We reach out in concern towards others while being fully content and satisfied through Jesus Christ. When we fellowship with others, we seek fellowship with Christ himself to know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in death so that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. And we give generously of ourselves for God's glory because Christ has given and continues to give generously of himself to us. There is nothing that we are called to do in gospel partnership that the Lord Jesus Christ himself didn't do. God designed it this way because it makes us more like Jesus. It's all for Jesus' sake. And God himself will see to it that we make it there. Therefore, as we bring this series in Philippians to a close, let us go in full confidence and assurance in this grace as we go about joyfully striving together for the gospel. And so as it says in the very last verse in Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your generosity and grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would respond to your word in obedience and faith so that we might grow in contentment in Christ, 
that we may fellowship sweetly, personally, closely, meaningfully in faithfulness, and that we may give generously of ourselves for your glory because you have given generously of yourself through Jesus Christ. Help us to do these things and to joyfully strive together for the gospel. To your praise and glory, in Jesus' name we pray.